So I'll try to so offer some reflections that, um, that continue and hopefully add to the theme, and then we'll have some chance to explore a bit together. Spoken, you know, we sort of divided up what yesterday we were looking at as friction. We divided up a little this morning into its physical, energetic, felt component, which we're calling tension in various ways, and then the more emotional, uh, psychological, cognitive component, drama. And this morning we've been focusing more on the, the physical and the, the sort of, well, the, the simplicity of dealing with things just on the level of tension and relaxation. And that, that sounds very simple, and I think yesterday we maybe spoke a little about this tendency to overly, I would say, overly mentalize meditation, and the importance of a kind of visceral practice, an embodied practice, an embellied practice. And uh, was it just this morning I was speaking a little bit about the three centers? Yeah. It's interesting, you know, there's um, a, pa a Pali term the Buddha uses, which I rarely hear unpacked, but it's very curious initially. And he, sp he speaks about two different kinds of attention. Right? Disembodied attention, or abstracted attention, we were speaking about yesterday, our tendency to abstract our experience. And then embodied attention. And the Pali word for embodied attention is yoniso manisikara. Yoniso manisikara. Yoni Right? means often in the yogic traditions translated as vagina, right? which it can mean, but it also, in this context, it more means womb. Right? Yoni so, so means from. Yoni so, mind, ikara, action. So uh, mental activity that comes from the womb. A little clumsy way of saying it. Wombi attention. <laughs> Woomy, woomy attention. Interesting. So if you're feeling left out because you're one of those beings that doesn't think you have a womb, then, you know, just as we were speaking earlier, we're not really attending to the f biological breath, but more the energetic tide of the breath. Right? Same way, that energetic womb, in other words, that the deep belly, the deepest place in us, and one might wonder why why Buddha would use a term like womb, which is, you know, I imagine in Pali, I don't know, but is gender specific. Especially he's using it as a man. Yoni so. But also, you know, the womb is the cradle of life, the source of life, the origin of life. And so I wonder, I don't know, right? But I, I just wonder about if those um those associations might be very implicit right, in, that, in that construction of the word, the different elements, yoniso, manisikara, a womb-born attention, attention that's grounded deep in the belly. And a lot of the, the traditions put a certain emphasis on really awakening up this area, the hara, Dantian uh, in Chinese, the kath, Sufis call it, the, what do we call it, the belly. 
yoni. And so just that, that sense, I think, of working with attention. And again, the word attention can sound like um, you know, something mental. So to really relate to the, the way meditation is, a cultivating of attention, a directing of attention, a refining of attention, a clarifying of attention, a filling out of attention, but that, that be a woomy attention. And in terms of the focus on that area as a focus for meditation, you know, sometimes the instruction just to feel the breathing or sometimes the instructions might be specifically to kind of uh, place one's attention or ground one's attention down in the belly. Sometimes it might be just anywhere. Some people focus more particularly on the uh, feeling of breathing at the nose and sometimes the encouragement is given there. But it seems to me it does actually make a difference where one places one's attention. And that for those of us, which is most of us, who are kind of quite uh, stimulated and in the head center and quite used to a highly abstracted form of attention, and maybe our working lives are dealing a lot with abstracted information. We, most of us, here, probably, living in New York City, don't have very earthy working lives. Right? Maybe, maybe some of you are municipal gardeners in Manhattan. Right? But when, when we're working a lot with you know, digital stuff and numbers or uh, letters to people or strategies about this or whatever we do, you know, when we're very stimulated there, it seems to make a particular, it's particularly helpful, I would say, to use the belly center as a kind of, oh, as the place where one trains the gathering of attention, the grounding in hereness, a woomy hereness, a woomy, uh, an embodied hereness. Very helpful. And a lot, I think, of. Uh, if one gets serious about this practice and there's a certain consistency and a certain momentum to one's practice and one really genuinely feels kind of inspired by the, the scope and vision of Dharma practice. You know, so the scope and vision that's pointed to in the text is a genuinely really liberating scope and vision of practice. And it seems to me the, the kind of the fundamental foundation of a, of, a real, of a really transformative practice is establishing that kind of more or less constant embodied awareness. And that seems difficult at the beginning because we're so used to the abstraction. Right? And also because then we say, oh, I'm caught up again. Oh, I've got to come back. And coming back seems like something difficult. As if we sort of pursuing our you know, grabbing it and pulling it back to some elusive place called the present moment. And then we kind of try to tie our attention to the present moment, right, into the form of the breath. And then there's a moment of inattention and then oh, we're off again. That's why in the, in the guided meditation just earlier, or in the meditation I was just, just giving a little reference to the fact that we never really go elsewhere. Even the, all the abstractions that we generate, they don't actually happen somewhere else. Right? 
They happen here. Here. Here in this body field. Here in this field of experience. And the more we sense that, we realize that we don't need to do anything when we get caught up. That the recognition is the, is the reminder that, oh, we're here. I'm here. And that rather than what seems to be the case early on, that the easy or default uh, situation is one where I'm all caught up. Right? And then, oh, I try to be present, try to be present, and then I'm caught up. That the opposite starts to be true. That's a lot of the work with tension. You know? It's realizing that every time, if you notice, as soon as you notice you, you've got caught up somewhere, you can feel the tensions that are inherent in manufacturing and then sustaining that thought stream. And actually being present is just is a relaxation. It's just letting that stuff fall away. And that's, the, that's how we start to really, first of all, realize that we can be present pretty much constantly. Because it's not work to be present. It's work. All the other stuff is work. The work to be constantly coming up with, you know, dramas and details and fantasies and objections and uh, resistances. And that's work. Someone famously asks the Buddha in the text, you know, do I need to be present all the time? And the Buddha somewhat humorously replies, um, well, just when sitting or walking or lying down or standing or moving between one of the eyes. <laughs> I would say, I would say, you know, do we need to be present all the time? It's like what seem what we sort of need for the that the momentum of a truly liberating practice or a, tr- a truly free relationship to life. We need to be present enough, enough that there's a, a certain kind of background vigilance that when we start to get activated, when we start to get caught up, something in us just knows. It's like, hold on, this doesn't feel normal. Yeah. Something going on here. Something needs attention. It's, oh. And the more we, st- the more we start to really feel into and allow and and relax into presence, the more obvious our kind of um, neuroses or, or inner dramas and tensions, the more obvious they are when they start to appear, because they feel weird and unusual and unnecessary. Instead of just, you know, there used to be so much the status quo that we didn't experience them as tensions or dramas. We experienced them as just how things are. That's the, I think that's the essence really of of working with, with this sort of physical energetic layer of, of of having a human experience. The willingness to keep softening and then the recognition that, oh, basic ease can be the the fundamental, ongoing, near constant ground of our practice. And then, you know, just aligning ourselves as sincerely as we can, moment by moment by moment by moment with that. And then, that, that really does become the norm. 
And maybe you know, for some of you, that's where you live, right? In that kind of near constant uh, uh, sense of a certain fluid, uh, open field of experience. It's being constantly impacted and influenced by, by whatever's happening. And for others, and just to see your relationship for yourself with that. To question, I would encourage you to question if that feels far away or if that feels difficult or if that feels like often people say, I'm a treat, wow, it would be, you know, it would be so hard to be present all the time. No, it's so hard not to be present all the time. Not hard to be present, it's relieving to be present. talk a little more now about the drama the drama do you remember Inquiring Mind that magazine, Wes Niska used to have a great it was about the only thing I ever read in Inquiring Mind he had the great column in the back page the dharma and the drama so drama here is, is shorthand right for um, you know, for all all the rest the component that isn't, right, the, the difficulty or resistance or struggle with life that isn't just a physical clenching or tightening, but that is uh, animated or alimented. Is that the English word? Alimenté, I'm thinking of? No. Alimented? No. Fed. Right? By, by all the rest. By the storytelling, by the emotional posturing, by the, the need or the indignation or the righteousness or whatever else or the fear that goes along with that. And, you know, one can unpick and unpack that in, in countless ways. That's a lot of what we do, right? There's a lot of what Dharma teachings are. It's a lot of what we do in our practice. A lot of what we do as we kind of process and understand and explore what's happening to us. We understand elements of our, you know, elements of the human drama, the way just human experience tends towards greed, hatred and delusion, for, to use the Buddhist shorthand. You know. And then our own version of that. Oh, how do, what, do, what does that look like for me? And then we start to understand our habits of that. We start to understand some of where that comes from and we start to understand something about how we can put it down a little bit. So I just thought I'd explore a little bit of that in many ways some in sort of broad brush strokes but with the encouragement to just see you know what you recognize about your own style. Some of us uh, for some of us, our style is to actively seek out drama. You know, we like it. And some people, we're sort of on the lookout. And then when we hear, oh, did you hear about what happened? So, so, oh, tell me more. <laughs> you know? Really. Hungry for drama. And you can, you know, it, it seems to be, right, really like a hunger Somebody I know well, I really see that in them, they, that they kind of light up. 
at the sound that oh there's some something happening over here or some people's relationship is a bit rocky over here or did you hear what da, 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 and she, they they kind of they you know some of us we we kind of fed i mean not actually nourished by drama but we feel oh it gives us because it gives a lot of um it gives a lot of ego supply right something to get our teeth into oh, oh. it puts us very it puts us more intensely into the world of this and that and me and you and them and what and how and where and uh, in other words, it gives, us a, it gives us a strong foothold in duality, basically, or multiplicity. It gives us a strong foothold in the familiar reference points by which we arbiter reality. Right? Self and world, this and that, me and you, before and after, good and bad. And for some of us, that, that you know, entering into and making much of that world in all kinds of different ways is really you know, a big part for some people of how we orientate to those familiar places. And the more, because those familiar places aren't really real, right? we can't really find before and after, they seem ordinary enough, but actually we sense, like we were saying earlier, there is no elsewhere. Here is an edgeless realm that stretches out forever. The, we, you know, the sense of inner and outer, we spoke about a bit yesterday, me and you, of course, conventionally, very helpful distinctions, but we actually really attend very carefully and, and gently to reality, those kind of boundaries soften. We find a much more intimate, unified sense of, of, uh, of each other, of life. But that's very nebulous territory until we get familiar with it. So when we're not familiar with it, having something that seems to give us a familiar foothold, me and you and right and wrong and good and bad, is very seductive. That's a lot of what gossip is, right? The kind of salacious, kind of salacious quality. So, like I say, for some, that's the style. Others of us find ourselves like um, averse to drama. You know, it's, it feels threatening in some way. There's, there's, you know, there's some drama around. This is happening. It can feel threatening or destabilizing. And all of these, you know, our style with with drama is probably is to a great extent conditioned by what happened early on in life. Right. Whatever early impressions of drama, or difficulty, or unsafety, or complexity, or mystery, or um, intrigue, or uh, threat, right? So, you know, the sorts of, no, not just little dramas, oh, oh, we missed the bus, we'll have to take another one, right? One can make anything out of that. If one, if one missed the bus with your mum, when you were six, and mum had an absolute meltdown about, uh, about not missing the bus, you know, then that could, have, that could impact too. But whatever ways we first 
experience a sense of drama, either about us or that we witness with our parents. Right? Like I was speaking, the example I gave this morning of my mum and I'm you know, freaking out about the mouse. Right? It just has an impact then. So rather than a mouse being a little cute, cute little furry thing, the mouse becomes a source of drama for me. Oh, mouse. So as I say, for others of us, early impacts of things that were dramatic, that generated um, emotional, psychological material for our parents, for example, or those around us. And therefore, when we see that, it develops material for us. And for some of us, our style is, oh, you know, get me out of here. I don't like this. I don't want this. I can't deal with this. And, and the sense is if there's some drama going on around me, you know, I, I shut down to it or I back away from it. And, you know, that it feels threatening. Others of us, another sort of defense around drama is becoming very opinionated. And so drama, getting very, a very strong sense of black and white around drama about, you know, sort of siding with a certain view in a very strong way, siding against another view in a strong way. Being very, and, and then the foothold that we're looking for is being right. And we love to feel right. It's, it's, again, it's a kind of, it's a way of reassuring ourselves. All of these things, you know, relationships, the way we create drama and respond to drama, kind of ways of... Uh, Reassuring ourselves. It might be another style just to kind of check out some way, to leave. Another style might be actually just to become overwhelmed, right? And then, and then the the, the we the, our own way of generating drama in response to what's happening is a lot of difficult emotion, flooding emotion. And become dramatic, you know, or melodramatic. Right? You see, in 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 relationship conflicts, when we fall out with somebody, right? And some people get very much into that right and wrong thing. Others get very much into the you know the kind of the a, a lot of emotional pain and conflict and confusion around it. Others just get very de- defensive, right? Others actually like it. You know, some relationships are a constant cycle of just, you know, um, generating drama. It's like that's how we remember that we're in relationship with each other. Right? I don't think it's true of all... No, I know it's not true of all French relationships, but it's, it's, it's a little bit the kind of the cliché of French relationships. I don't know how you see French relationships from here but from even within France often I feel this is sort of pride among the French that that's how we do relationship you know we're passionate and we get it we argue a lot and shout at each other and then we make up and then we make a love <laughs> and then repeat
also partly just the invitation to, to you know, it's interesting to reflect, what's my, what's my style? In response to, the, to the, the inevitable, you know, the dramas that play out around us and play out in our world and play out in our relationships. And, all. and then also just getting to see the way we sustain drama, invent drama, depend on drama internally you know, for the, the story of ourselves and for the sense of ourselves. It's like... And, and all those different styles that I just pointed out, right, they just they go on inwardly as well. Right? Just, some, uh, the, the, just some impact, something happens that we don't like or something happens that we find very beautiful or what, whatever the impact and the tendency to make much of it in some way. To kind of, some of us get very analytical about things. That's another style. Right, to make drama well, of course, what does it mean? And, you know, I sometimes find it incredible, like I might read a film review or something, and the amount of analysis, the amount of what, what the director must have meant with this and the symbolism of this and that and this and that, it's like, really? Me, I just saw a film. <laughs> you know? And of course, there's, there's a place for that. It can be, it can be, it can very, be very exploratory and expressive. But I, but, and I must say, when I come to New York, it seems to be a little bit of a quality of, of, of the city here. Like, I find New York is generally incredibly articulate. Right? That's the nice part. Right? Very, very articulate, very able to clearly express uh, ideas and to really, you know, to think and explore and, and beautiful. But sometimes it's, it's a little overwrought. It seems to me. Do you know what I mean? Like overwrought, like uh, over, like done to death, you know. Like oh mate, and this and that and this nuance, and that's like wow. So again, I'm not suggesting all New Yorkers any more than <laughs> hashtag not all New Yorkers, right? Like not all French. But again, just to, to get familiar with what we do, and again, for some of us, we get we get very. Uh, you know, that it, it feels threatening to get too busy in our mind and the tendency to shut down or the tendency to seek refuge in a strong opinion. Right. Whatever. And as I say, you know, what's your style? I mean, I'm asking you that now as a reflection. What's your style? But I'm also asking it to you just in, in terms of the general getting to know oneself. And we spoke about this this yesterday this sense of go, that we have of going from friction to freeness, right? From dukkha to nibbana or whatever. But actually often rather than going from to anything, it's more a question of familiarizing ourselves, right? We, it's like we get familiar with, that's a lot of what Dharma practice is, getting familiar with dukkha, and getting familiar with friction, getting familiar with your dramas. The more familiar you are with them, the less beholden to them you are. Right? The more transparent they become. The more humorous, actually, they can become. Like, oh yeah, there I go again. Right? And the more we see that it's just me going there again, the less personally we take it. That's what gets really insidious right, about our dramas, is we take them so personally. We make them all about me. 
So we explore and we get to know our style and we get familiar with and they become more transparent and we increasingly increasingly find out in, in a rather, in a, you know, I mean, it's obvious way, really, right? That we increasingly find out that we can be free of dr- so much drama. We can be free amidst the dramas playing out around us. We can be free of generating drama within us. But actually, in some ways, it's not so obvious because we're, so, you know, as a hu- relational human, we're so used to that drama. But from, from within it, when we're in the middle of it, it's hard to imagine. When we haven't ever known anything but tension and drama, right? really, as how we define ourselves, my problems, my issues, my beliefs, my needs, my relationships, my, 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 right? then it's kind of hard for us to imagine what on earth would make up, what would be there without tension and drama. And sometimes when people get into this practice, at a certain point they start to feel... It would be boring. I don't want to let go of my tension and drama. That makes me who I am in some way. And it's true. It does make us who we are. And then the question is there, Then, who would I be without my dramas? Who would I be without making so much out of Martin? Martin's needs and Martin's life and Martin's deficiencies and Martin's good bits and Martin's, you know, who would I be if I wasn't making much of myself? So there's some different ways, I think, that, that who we find out we're able to be without our drama. There's some different ways that shows up. And one way is as a great sense of simplicity. Right? A very sweet, nourishing, easeful, soothing sense of simplicity. It's soothing. God, it's soothing to the nervous system to not have so much drama going on. And the life might look complicated or busy or uh, intense or uh, complicated, but, it, but, there can be, but even though there can be a lot going on, Feeling can be very undramatic. At the centre in France, we, um, you know, there's kind of a lot going on there often. There's 60 or to 80 people on retreat uh, a lot of the time. And there's a certain complexity to managing that and feeding everybody and, you know, the toilets get blocked and, you know, the endless just stuff happens and maintenance and this and that and this and that and then just recently we've we've just committed to building a new hall it's a big building project and um, just get into that and we you know the committing involves committing money to it and committing time to it and organizing a lot of different features that go into building it and the bank was committed to supporting us and a certain responsibility to have to pay back the bank loan but that's okay we've managed and we go ahead and we you know contract people and we commit to a lot of resources and then at the last minute having assured us that it would be okay the bank decide no they don't want to support the project after all so, oh. so we've committed to spend two hundred thousand uh, dollars euros 
but we haven't got the 200,000 euros anymore. And just amidst the complexities, sort of middle of teaching a retreat, 60 people there, and then one of the key staff members uh, has got a, a drama happening, so there's some added need there. And then preparing to go away on a big trip, and then the daughter, another drama there, and then uh, you know the students on the retreat are full of dramas, and then the banks refuse the bank loan, and then I uh, tried this out at lunchtime on a bank loan. So, oh. ah. so then the, the thought arises, oh, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And someone remarked to me, somebody who was a little more invested in the drama of it all, you know, somebody whose style is then, we hear some difficult news, and even though we say, oh, it's difficult, part of us goes, oh, difficult news. Here's something to get our teeth in. What's going to happen? You know? So this is... Well, they were a little disappointed, I think, to find that I wasn't, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? <laughs> and it was just interesting to contrast their expectation of drama, their implication in a, in a, a sense of drama, the, 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 the situation, right, which was full of complexity, but the, experience, the inner experience just wasn't, was no drama, just oh. We need to do something. What do we need to do? Give some time, give some thought, give some care, etc. And it's, you know, I find, I, personally, I find that something that's very kind of energizing in the midst of complexity. Right? The complexity, of, whether it's the complexity of running the center or whatever other complexity goes on in life. I'm involved in quite a lot of different projects and different countries and etc. etc. And there's something kind of uh, energizing and and um, it's sort of a reminder of the the potency actually of practice or the the kind of limitless sense of possibility, right? There's a reminder of the capacity to navigate things freely, that, 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 that seeing how complexity doesn't need to generate drama. Mm. The, the complexity of a situation doesn't have anything to do, really, with, with how we meet it. Life is complicated. We don't need to be complicated. Because you never actually, you know, the, the feeling can be, oh, I'm, I'm managing so many things at once. But that's not actually true, right? If you try to manage lots of things at once, that will make a sense of drama. And that, the drama often comes, oh, I've got to do this, and then I mustn't forget that. And da, 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 da. But actually, you're just attending to this, attending to this, attending to this. And this can be very specific, and precise, like sitting, attending to breathing. Or this can be very expansive and all-inclusive and have lots of elements. But it's still basically, attending to this has a certain spaciousness to it, a certain simplicity to it. A student went to see a friend of mine once after a retreat to thank her for the retreat and found her eating a her lunch and reading a book and uh, like this. and the student said, oh, I came to see thank you, but I'm a bit shocked to see you reading a book while you're eating. <laughs> you see, I've been talking to us about, you know, just being present and doing one thing at a time, 
And now look at you. And she said, yeah, I am just doing one thing at a time. Reading a book while eating my lunch. (laughs) So we can have a narrow view of what it means to be simple. But actually the simplicity is really in the quality of engagement, a kind of capacity to include, a willingness to include, without generating a lot of story, without generating a lot of push and pull. Another, another flavor of simplicity is one of the flavors of freeness from drama. Another flavor is the, is the sense of clarity, particularly you know, in the, the dramas that play out around us. I mean, you know, the drama of the political situation, for example. Right? Or, or, you know, the smaller scale, the dramas that might play out in our... In our Closer circles, family, work, etc. And we spoke yesterday about views, right? And strong views and, then, and the way we hold views. And often when we find ourselves, not just, we can be oppositional to a view, but when we find ourselves, when we're caught in the drama, it's not just that we're we're opposed to the view, we feel oppositional to the person, right? There's the tendency to kind of to demonize, to, uh, you know, to exclude them from our heart. It's like we can't really see the other as human. They're so wrong, or so bad, or so stupid, or so whatever. And, you know, the moment we've got into conceiving of the other as wrong or bad or stupid or, or whatever, that's our drama. And when we're not generating any extra drama, we see the other person with our, our, in a very different light. We see them in clarity. We see actually what we see often is their suffering. Right? We see their drama. They're caught in whatever narrow sense they may be caught in of uh, righteousness or caught in whatever uh, blindness or caught in whatever need or caught in whatever insecurity or whatever's producing their, the, their side of the view. Oh, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's both painful and sweet in a way to see the human heart behind the, uh, the drama or the oppositional view. And when one might have strong views of oneself, one might speak up about one's strong views, might one act in support of one's strong views. But again, all that can happen without generating the drama of demonizing another. Which, which is exhausting. You know, if you're active politically, particularly in such febrile times as these are, right, such polarized times as these are, it, it's, it's exhausting to be, to be active in a polarized situation when one's generating, you know, a, a lot of those, a lot of drama, a lot of views oneself. 
So important if we're going to be active for the things we care about and the things that we believe in, the things that are aligned with our values. Really important that we learn to, to genuinely, you know, front up to or recognize or acknowledge our own view production, our own drama, our own demonization, etc. And it's, 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 a little, it's a little tricky to explain, but my sense of a part of how that clarity works is we can, we can really start to see it sounds, this doesn't, isn't a popular view, and it sounds like a cop-out in some way, but we can actually start to see that everybody's right. Everybody's right. Even the ones that are really don't seem right. Right? And what I mean by right, everyone's right, it's like, oh, in their own drama world, right? in their own belief castle, right? in their own fear and defensiveness and need and conditioning and all that has been constructed for them and in them throughout their lives and all they have constructed themselves, in that world they're right. Of course they're right in that world. That's why they're so vociferously attached to their view. And when we see that someone's being you know, objectionable or insulting or cruel or abusive or whatever it is, and that's the painful bit, and then to see, oh, that it's born, you know, they're so wedded to that view because they, they're, they're right. And then somehow, you know, the oppositionalness to the view can still be there completely, but it's like there's no gap anymore between the human hearts. Because I know what it's like to feel right and then get busted on it. Right? We all know what it's like to be convinced we're right. And then a few minutes later, or sometimes it's a few decades later, right? oh, <laughs> the view evolves, the understanding evolves in some way. And so it sounds, it sounds utterly anathem, anamathic, anathemic. It's a real, it's anathema. <sighs> Got there. <laughs> to us. To consider that this person with this view that's so clearly wrong compared to my view. It can feel very hard for us to come to a place where we can say, oh, they're right. But actually, if you, let, if you can't see that the other one's right, it's your drama that's in the way. In that sense, and I want to be careful the way I language that because I'm not trying to excuse some of the, the you know, divisive or cruel uh, or views that go on in the, you know, not just views, actions that go on. Right? But if we can't see that the other's behavior and view and action is right, right? not right in an objective sense, not right uh, in, in any kind of absolute moral sense, but right in, in terms of the, uh, their, the own, their own prism. Right, that they're living in, the prison of their, their conditioning, the prison of their tensions and dramas themselves, then we have some drama that's in the way of that clarity. And of course, when there's, when there's that clarity, that's the other, the other flavor of not being wedded to our view, the other flavor of being free from our view, simplicity, clarity, and love. When we're not generating drama, or just the drama may be there, but when we're no longer believing in the drama that gets generated, 
Your life looks very different. Other beings look very different. When we're not seeing them through our drama, the pushes and pulls, the approving and disapproving, the wanting and the rejecting. When we, when we walk through the forest or when we walk through the streets of Manhattan, if we're not, when we're not lost in our drama of where I'm going and what I need today and da da da, and when we're not manufacturing drama about what do we, what we see around us, then suddenly the world is kind of just extraordinary. We might prefer the city or we might prefer the countryside. Right? And we might have reasons to be concerned about pollution or to be concerned about deforestation. Right? And it's not to put aside those concerns. Right? But if we're, not, if we're not identified, if we're not caught up in that drama, this, you know, all we can see is something to love. You know, people to love. It's just, you know, people crossing intersections. Oh, it's like, like angels. You know, the light goes green and everyone just walks. And the light goes red and some people stop. <laughs> I, had, uh, the, uh, I used to, when I was uh, staying in London for a couple of weeks, and I would ride on the, the subway there in London and I would listen to choral music right, on my phone. It's kind of very exquisite, ethereal kind of music recorded in cathedral with amazing um, acoustics. And it was the, the works of Hildegard von Bingen. I think Arvo Part I was listening to as well. And it was extraordinary just the, the, the feel that gave to the train carriage. Ah, sitting there thinking, ah, wow. And then the doors open. Ah, and just, you know, Angels float in, and then other angels float out. Turned out to be a beautiful way to bypass one's drama. How easy it is to sit on the tube train. They look a bit. I bet she's. Whatever, you know, just kind of parsing people between, you know, attractive and unattractive, worthy of attention or unworthy of attention, liking their trousers or not liking them. You know. Whatever it is, whatever it is. And, you know, it's kind of normal, human beings, we, we, we relate to other human beings. So it's normal to notice people. And it's normal to have a kind of uh, a response that likes or doesn't like. And yet, if we, just, if we just go on letting that drama production happen unconsciously, then that's what gets strengthened. That's all we end up with, right, is our prejudices and our views and our likes and dislikes. Right? You can't necessarily stop them. You don't need to stop the production of that. But if we want to be free of our own dramas, we need to be awake to how they're shaping us in different ways. And also, as well as being awake to those dramas, actually finding ways to just step out. So choral music is one way to step out. right? But also, you know, just walking down the street when you walk home this evening, you know, Oh, you're walking through these these streets full of suffering Buddhas. You know, walking through these streets, you know that just like me practice. You know, oh, it's a very good city practice. You know, 
but whoever we see, however we might relate or not relate to someone we see, it really doesn't take much of a stretch of the imagination to realize that they're just like me. Just like me, you know, caught in the prison of their own conditioning. Having done none or a little or a lot, we might not know in that moment, of work towards understanding and you know, expanding the walls of that prison and actually getting out from between the bars, etc. And just like me, having you know, some conditions that are supportive in their lives and some conditions that are difficult in their lives, and just like me, you know, wanting to know a certain ease and freedom... Just like me, you know, wanting to be loved and wanting to be reassured and wanting to be cared for. And in that sense, you know, love is, is uh, uh, care, compassion, spaciousness of heart is a fruit of being free from drama. But it's also, you know, works the other way around. It's also a condition for freedom from drama, actually cultivating uh, a caring relationship, cultivating the capacity to see uh, people beyond their drama, to see the heart, not the story. So that's, that's part of the promise, right, of our practice promise not just of freedom from drama in an abstract sense, but the promise of a certain of spaciousness, clarity, simplicity, love. The promise of actually really being able to love life. To love life. And that has lots of different flavors, right? Normally when we say, I love life, we use love in a very cheap way often. We use love to mean extremely like, right? Or be gratified by. And sometimes that's loving life. Oh, I love life. I love life because we're able to see and feel beauty. But sometimes loving life is actually has a whole different quality. We're able to love life in a more active way by being patient with it. By listening deeply to what's happening. By caring for somebody who's suffering. And caring for someone is a way of loving them. Many ways to love life. But when we're preoccupied by our own tensions and dramas, it's, it's, it's very hard to find that space. So, well, for these reflections, you know, in the support of us getting familiar with tension and, you know, in the service of really knowing a consistency of easeful embodied, present, ground, where we are. And getting to know our dramas in the service of seeing through them, putting them down, no longer making them about me. So may all beings be free from tension and drama, free in tension and drama, free with tension and drama free through tension and drama. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.